Father, we come to you as the, the strength and hope of your people. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. First of all, with thoughts of thanksgiving. For Lord, we're not ashamed of the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we trust in you with regard to our sins. We trust, Lord, that you have cast them behind our back. Lord, we trust in you when many evils surround us about. And Lord, we trust you when we are tempted with sin to provide the way out. Lord, we trust you in our hour of weakness, in our hour of distress, when we were troubled exceedingly with the things of this earth and the cares of this world. But Lord, through all this, you have not failed us and our faith has not fallen. Lord, even times when we don't believe, you still remain faithful. Lord, you have helped your people. You have been the strength and the help of your chosen. Lord, your word tells us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And Lord, at this moment, in looking back upon the past, if we are to give an honest testimony, we have nothing to do but to admire and to adore your constancy of love and the faithfulness of your grace. Lord, we thank you that we, you have dealt with us in such a way as being faithful to us because, Father, we're not always faithful to you. Lord, our feet have sometimes slipped. Our prayers have often been weak. But Lord, you're still faithful to us. And we thank you for that this morning. Lord, we ask you that in the dark and evil days in which we live, that we not turn away from the gospel, that we may not be traitors to the gospel. But Lord, that we remain faithful to you, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the message and testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you do hear the cry of the faithful. You do hear our cries when we call out to you. And Father, we thank you for that. Lord, you reign in the midst of your people. And because of that, we praise you. Father, I ask you this morning, for those of us here at the Living Church, who are here and those who are listening uh, in other places, Lord, strengthen us as to our future confidence in you. Lord, if there's anyone in here whose confidence begins to fail because of the present affliction or deep depression of spirit, Lord, we ask you to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. And let their faith no longer waver, but may they become strong in you, Lord, in the assurance of faith. Lord, you know the burden of every heart in here this morning. You know the burden of every person who is under the sound of my voice. Lord, you know the secret sighs and the secret tears that we often cry. That come upon your ears. And Lord, because you know all, because you see all, you can answer all. You're not absent from us, Lord, but you are ever so present with us. And Lord, that is the great comfort and hope that we have. That the captain of our salvation, the captain of our souls is always present, is always accounted for, is always on duty. And Lord, it is your pleasure to serve us. It is your pleasure to care for us. It is your pleasure, Lord, to, to, to give us strength and to help us in time of trial. And Lord, I ask you to save your people from, un from unbelief. Save us from confidence in man. Lord, save us from looking to the idols that we have manufactured in our hearts in this world. 
As we just read in our responsive reading in Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. Lord, this scripture testifies against us that when we look to idols, when we look to man instead of looking to you, Lord, we will fail. Because they can't help us ultimately. It's okay to go to people. It's, go, it's okay to talk to people and to confide and, and ask for prayer and ask for encouragement. But Lord, ultimately man can't be our help. Only you can. When we make idols out of people, Lord, our idols will inevitably fail us. Our idols will inevitably let us down because they are not like you, Lord. Our idols are helpless and hopeless in curing the human condition. Our idols can't take away the guilt of our sins. Our idols can't take away the condemnation that we have on us if we're not in Christ. Lord, our idols can't assure us of our salvation. Our idols can't guarantee for us our heavenly inheritance. So, Father, that is why we are looking to you this morning. Lord, we can trust you, and we do. Our faith has gathered strength with each passing year. Each following birthday, we trust, Lord, confirming us the fact that to rely upon you is our happiness and our strength. And we will do well to do this. Though the earth may be moved and though the mountains may be carried into the midst of the sea. Lord, we will not fear since you abide fast forever. And your covenant cannot fail. Father, we also pray this morning for our uh, elected officials, our public servants as they are supposed to be. Lord, that you would give them hearts to love, honor, and serve you and to worship you as the one true God. To save them from their sins, those who are not saved among our public leaders, both in Washington, D.C. and in the state capitol, here in our great state of Alabama and in our city halls and county commissions. Lord, let you save our leaders. Give them a, a worldview, a biblical worldview, a worldview that honors you in all the legislation that they propose, all the laws and bills that are passed. Lord, we pray for our first responders, our police officers, you know, law enforcement, um, emergency medical technicians, EMTs, firefighters, all of our public servants. Lord, we pray for them. They're out all times of night while we're asleep, serving the community, putting out fires, attending to accidents, attending to the sick, stopping crime. Lord, we thank you for their service. And I pray that you strengthen all of them to do their jobs well to your glory. And Lord, we lastly pray for our sister churches, Aniston Bible, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer Church. Also, Lord, uh, Mountain View and Iron City Baptist. Father, we praise you for these men leading our churches, that you continue to strengthen them as they preach the gospel to their congregations, as they shepherd the flock of God. Well, bless those brothers. Continue to persevere them in pastoral ministry as you do with me here. And Lord, may their congregations be blessed by their ministry. And Lord, as I preach this text this morning, it's a difficult passage. Lord, help me, strengthen me, fill me with your spirit to preach this text well. And Lord, send your spirit to give us wisdom and understanding of the text that we may live by it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. 
Men, let's turn to Galatians, the third chapter. We're continuing in our series in the book of Galatians. This morning, we're working from the topic, the role or the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law or the role of the law. We're going to read the text here in a second. This is Galatians 3. Chapters, I'm sorry, verses 10 through 25. And it reads as follows. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions to the seed, capital S meaning Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only but God is one is the law then against the promise promises of God certainly not for if there had been a law given which could have given life truly righteousness would have been by the law but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe but before faith came we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, okay, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has, has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, this passage here. The central theme of it, the point of it is in verse 19, where Paul asks the question, what then does the law serve or what then does the law do? That is the central question of this passage that we have before this morning. You all have heard as reading this passage and also the last few weeks we've been in Galatians, the term the law, the law, the law, the law. The law are those commandments and statutes that are found primarily in the book of Deuteronomy. You also have laws in the book of Leviticus. And in the Jewish uh, sacrificial system of the Old Testament, there were approximately about 613 laws. That's a lot. And I always said, you know, the first 10 of those laws are the 10 commandments that were first given as, as is recorded in Exodus, the 20th chapter. 
But they had over 613 laws under the Jewish law code that they had to obey. That's a lot of laws. Think about in our society, all the laws that we have. We have laws for laws. <laughs> you know, if you break a law, then you have a law that punishes you for breaking that law. Okay? If you get caught speeding, you're breaking the law. And then you have to go what? To court and pay a fine. That's a law. That if you break the speed limit, you have to pay a fine. And the fine is real high right now from what I've been told I've had a speeding ticket in a while. But we have laws upon laws upon laws that govern our society. And we'll get to why we have laws. And we'll get to why God gave laws to Israel and why we have laws. We will get to that in this passage. But just kind of framing this passage, uh, the structure of it for you, to help us understand together this passage. In verses 10 through 14, Paul contrasts the curse of the law with the promise of the Spirit. He stresses that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So we see that in verses 10 through 14. And then the second section is verses 15 through 18, where Paul confirms the priority of promise over the law. He points out that the law came 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham. So that those promises have their fulfillment in Christ, you know, that seed. And then verses 15 through 18. I'm sorry, I just said that verses 19 through 25. Paul clarifies the role of the law. It, was, it had a custodial role. Okay, custodial means a, a, a teacher a taking care of something. It had a custodial role leading up to the fulfillment of the promises in Jesus Christ. So that is basically the structure of this passage. So let's go back and look at the first section. Now, according to verse 10... Those who are of the works of the law are under a curse. Paul says what? For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. What does he mean by the word curse? It's a curse of divine judgment, as John MacArthur said. A curse of a divine. I'm sorry. John MacArthur defines a curse in biblical terms. It is a divine judgment that brings the sentence of condemnation. So when you're looking at scripture, speaking of curse, you're talking about something that brings condemnation. You know, when we hear the word curse, the first thing that comes out of mind is like a person, a family having a family curse or a house is cursed or a football team or baseball team is is cursed or someone putting a curse on someone or like the Kennedy family is cursed. You know, you hear about that in those type of terms, but those are thoroughly unbiblical. In biblical terms, curse means basically condemnation is a sentence. So Paul is saying for as many as are of the works of the law, they are under the condemnation of the law, the condemnation that the law brings and it cannot be escaped. If you choose the route of trusting in the works of the law, there's no escape. If you choose to try to obey all of those laws, then there's no escape. You're under condemnation. Okay? So, they're under a curse. And Paul, he cites Deuteronomy 27 and 26. And I'll read that passage for you right quick. This is what uh, Moses uh, this is what God said to Israel uh, through the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 27 and 26. This is who Paul is quoting. And this is what Deuteronomy 27 and 26 says. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And all the people shall say, Amen. So the final curse covered all of the rest of God's commandments. So whoever does not follow all these commands, they were cursed. 
they were condemned. So that is where all the people agreed to that commandment. That's why they said, uh, amen, amen means I agree or it is said. So Paul here shows this passage to assert, to support his assertion that he just said, uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Now in verse 11, he references uh, Habakkuk 2 and 4, which says in verse 11, but that one, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. That is Habakkuk 2 and 4. So he was reminding his readers that no man is justified by the law. We talked about that last week. We're not made right with God by trying our best to obey God or trying our best to do right or trying our best to be a better person. That is not going to make us right in God's eyes. And I talked about last week how people live their lives trying to do that, trying to, to be the best person they can be or to do better. It's nothing wrong with trying to do those things, but you don't do those things in order to make yourself right with God. You do those things because you are right with God, because you are justified. You do those things. You don't do them in order to be justified or made right. If we need our own, if we rather plead our own justification, our cause will go against us. If we try to go to God and say, God, I, you know, I, I've done all these good things, you know, to be right with you. Can I do that? Is that, is, is, is that okay? If we try to plead our own justification before God, our case will go against us. We cannot be justified but by faith in God. Okay, that's the only way we can be made right with God is by faith. And that's what Paul is saying. The just shall do what? Live by faith. And where does that faith come from? We talked about that last week also. That faith comes from God. And who is that faith in? It's in Jesus Christ. It's not just faith for the sake of faith. Our faith has an object. And that person is Jesus Christ. So... We see that depending on the law is inescapable. It, it brings an inescapable curse because we're going to always disobey the law. We're going to always fall short of obeying the law. It is hopeless if we try to do it because God's standard for righteousness is perfection. That's his standard. God's standard for righteousness is perfection and you know what it is impossible for any man woman or child to measure up to perfection because none of us are perfect right we're not we cannot perfectly follow God's standard good intentions will get us nowhere 90% compliance will get us nowhere there's a saying there's an axiom that the 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 road to hell is paved with good intentions. A lot of people have good intentions on what? Doing something, doing right. But they fall short. Why? Because they're not perfect. We're not perfect. That's why we need a Savior and we'll get to that. So he goes on here in verses 13 and 14. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What Paul uses here is a definitive verb that provides emphasis. He says, Christ has redeemed us. He didn't say that Christ might. He didn't say that Christ should redeem us. He didn't say at some point of time in the future, Christ will redeem us. He says Christ what? Has redeemed us. That is a definitive. It is already done. He brings the liberating role of Jesus Christ into the discussion. He has redeemed us. What does it mean to be redeemed? To be set free. Like a slave being redeemed. Meaning they were set free. Like a person who has uh, had uh, drug addiction. When they're set free. They, that means that they are redeemed Christ has set us free 
from the curse, from the condemnation of the law, having himself becoming a what? Curse for us. This is one of the most foundational scriptures in all of Christendom. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And Paul makes this connection with uh, Deuteronomy 21 and 23, which says, Curse is everyone who hangs or who has been hung on a tree or wood. So he refers to Deuteronomy 21 and 23 when he says that. There's some great strength in this verse. His statement is much haughtier. It is full-blooded. Paul was convinced that Christ accomplished something definitive on the cross. And what was that? Our redemption. His death was entirely effective. That's why he says he has redeemed us. It was an effective death on the cross. He accomplished precisely what he wanted to accomplish. That's what he did. It was definite. When he said it is finished, that means it was complete. It was done. It was a definite death and it accomplished something. Now, how did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? He did it in a way that was almost unbearably severe, as a 20th century theologian said, called Barth. Barth said that Christ did almost unbearably severe so how did Christ redeem us he accomplished redemption by doing what was unthinkable he became a curse for us now Christ you have to understand he was sinless he was perfect he lived a sinless life he was the son of God he was perfect in everything he became a curse for us. And so for someone as righteous as Paul, this would have been a horrific thought. It would have been blasphemous. Jesus had been nailed to a tree that we now call the cross. And the law clearly states, curse is everyone who hang on a tree. So Christ became a curse for us. He became the condemnation for us. He became condemned to bear our condemnation. That's why those of us who believe in him, we're not condemned. Why? Because Christ became that condemnation for us when he died on the cross. He became the curse for us. Second Corinthians 5 and 21 says that uh, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us. In other words, it didn't mean that he sinned. He became sin. He became the curse that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ didn't know sin. Christ was not a sinner. And this reminds me of the song that we sing sometimes in church. It's an old hymn, actually, uh, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. This is what Christ did on the cross in becoming a curse for us. He died alone. He died a condemned death. So what we what comfort do we gain from that? When life is difficult and we begin to feel like we're under God's curse, we can run to the cross of Christ. And we can find that the curse has been lifted from us. Christ lifted that curse. He became the curse so that it could be lifted from us. And why did he do this again? Also, verse 14, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is called a henna clause. A henna clause is a purpose clause. So he says, so that, why did he become a curse for us? So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham. So this verse tells us that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. So because Christ became a curse for us, we can receive the Spirit by faith and not by works. Because he bore the curse of the law. He bore the condemnation of the law. Why? So that we would not be condemned by trying to obey the law. But rather that we would have faith. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Not by works or not by the law. And. Verses 13 and 14 here provide a beautiful summary of the gospel. What are those three things? Number one, this is a summary of the gospel in essence. Number one, Christ redeemed us from the law. That's what he did. And the gospel message, people, is not about what we do or what we have to do. It is about what Christ has done. Christ just like we saw on the song, Jesus, what? Paid it all. He paid the price. The gospel is what Jesus did, not what we do. So the first thing he did was he redeemed us from the law. Number two, he became a curse for us. That's how he did it. And number three, in order that we might receive the promise through faith. That is why he did it. So we see a, a summary what Christ did, how he did it, and why he did it in verses 13 and 14. The gospel is about him, not us. It's about what he has done, not what we can do. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. That's all we bring to the table. So, closing this thought out, the coming of Christ into the world dying in our place upon the cross, taking upon himself the dreaded curse of the law has enabled God's blessing to flow freely to those who believe in him. And we, as a result, are effective channels of God's blessing into the lives of others. We have the mind of Christ, our Savior. Our minds are conformed to his. Our hearts are saturated with his word. His peace rules in our lives and everything. And his love is filling us like the waters that cover the sea. That is the benefit of the gospel. And that's what happens to us. And because of those things, we become channels of God's blessing to other people. God pours all these things into us. And then guess what? We take it out into the world. We take it out and show the world what it looks like to be redeemed in Christ. Now this next section here. Verse, beginning at verse 15. Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. I'll say this about this section. Laws do not create righteousness. Laws do not create the desire to do righteous. I'm say that again. Laws do not create righteousness. And laws do not create a desire to do righteousness. Let me give you a fact. Let me give you a good illustration. This will relate to parents, of course. What do we find out about our children and probably us when we were children? You could put rules on the refrigerator, but they don't create the desirable behavior that you're looking for. 
Now, this doesn't mean that posting rules is pointless. It doesn't mean that you don't do it. But they reveal what's important to us as parents. That's why we do it, right? Because it's important to us. And so what we try to do is set uh, clear expectations for our children. You know, providing them with boundaries for appropriate behavior, right? And we communicate them and we interact with them how we want them to do what? Behave with us and with each other. But at the end of the day, guess what? We realize that these rules don't create obedience. They command. And rules are like that. Rules are the exact same way. They guide behavior, but they don't create behavior. Every parent knows this, but every police officer knows this. Do you know that over 7 million people in our nation are in jail? Actually, there's over 8 million people are in jail or in prison or on parole or probation in our nation. Yet as a society, we've never had more laws on the books. If you think about it. Obviously, laws don't create compliance. You know, tragically, you have like what they, what they say is mass shootings that take place, or school shootings. And then what's the first thing that people in Washington say? We need to uh, create common sense gun laws. Okay? Take away all the guns. Is that going to end murder? Take away all knives. Is that going to end murder? Guess what? <laughs> the more laws you make, the more lawbreakers you're going to have. You know that's against the law to text and drive? Every state has that as a law. But how many people still text and drive? Or look at, I see people nudging elbows and stuff, you know, looking at doing snaps or taking selfies while they're driving or, you know, going live while they're driving, you know, stuff like that. But yet those, there are laws against that. Because guess what? Laws don't create righteousness in people. They're meant more to restrain evil than to prevent it. You know, we have speed limits. It's 45 down Quintar. Sometimes when I'm here, you know, and going up the hill. You hear people racing, going up the hill, going, going up to town. Although the speed limit is 45. Because some people are going to obey that law, but some people aren't because those laws can't create righteousness in a person. And it's the same way with God's law. And this is what Paul is saying. On Mount Sinai, Moses received God's law. It called for righteousness, but it cannot create righteousness. And this was the basic weakness of the law. It cannot create within us the desire to do the very thing that it demands in us. It can guide right desire, as I said, but it cannot give right desire. Or as Paul says in here, the law cannot give life. He says, not to Abraham his seed where the promise made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as one to your seed who is Christ. So this law cannot change our hearts. So Paul uses everyday human experience, beginning at verse 15. He says, no one annuls or rejects or adds a man-made covenant once it has been ratified. And then in verse 16, he provides the reminder that promises were made to Abraham and his offspring and that this offspring is Christ. So Christ is Abraham's offspring. Seed. He is the one. He is the promised seed that scripture was speaking of. That's why in some of your translations, it may say uh, a capital S by it because it's speaking of Christ. So he is the ultimate offspring. And so he says that. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later. So the law was given 430 years after Abraham. Okay, because Abraham didn't have the law. It was given centuries later. 
And Paul says it cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. So what does that mean? The law was given over 430 years after Abraham. Okay, but that law does not annul the covenant that God made with Abraham. Okay, what was the covenant that God made with Abraham? That through him all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. And to your seed who is Christ, the law did not annul that promise to Abraham. Because it came after him. And so that's why Paul was telling these, these Jews, hey guys, you got it all wrong. The law did not nullify or annul a covenant that uh, was previously made by God. You guys got it backwards. You got it all wrong. That's what he was telling them. So, also the law does not modify or complicate the promise that God made with Abraham. Paul clarifies the identity of the recipient of God's promise to Abraham. Ultimately, he says this recipient is not Israel. It's not even the church. According to this passage, it is who? It is Christ. It is Christ. His single seed. So this is the point about God's promises. Christ Jesus is the one true beneficiary of all of God's promises. He is the one true beneficiary. God has given everything to Christ, his son. Every blessing that God has in this world comes to us through Christ. He has already been given to Christ. That's why when we are in Christ, we receive those spiritual blessings. Those who are not in Christ don't receive those blessings, but those who are in Christ do. We receive all the blessing that God has given to him. Every blessing we seek, every good thing in the world is to be found in Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1 and 20. He says, for all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. And that's what Paul was telling these Galatians here. Christ is the center of all that God is doing in this world. Christ is the center of all that God wants to do for the world. Christ is the center of all that God wants to do for you and me and in you and me. Christ is the center. It is all about Christ. It is not about us. Paul said in Galatians, it's not about the law. It's about Christ. It's not about obeying the law. It's about Christ. We don't look to anywhere. We don't look anywhere else for God's blessings. But in Christ, they can only be found in him. Those blessings can't be found through social media, can't be found through our family members, our friends, our loved ones, our uh, co-workers, our jobs, all the material blessings that we have. They cannot be found in those things. All those things are going to pass away. They can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is telling them here. Because he says here in verse 18, he presents the idea of inheritance. He says, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. By promise. And this leads to our last section here about law and sin, the, the meat of our passage here this morning, the role of the law. Well, what is the purpose of the law? Okay. Paul says here, what purpose then does the law serve? 
It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Thy mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So let's look at this. First of all, he asks and answers the question, what is the purpose of the law? In other words, well, what's the law for then? You're talking about law, 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 law. What is it for? He says it was added because of what? Transgressions. I define the word transgression because we see that word a lot. The word transgression is basically an act that goes against a law, a rule, or a code of conduct. That's basically what it is. Breaking the law. Breaking the code of conduct. To transgress means to, to, to basically break the law. Or to break a rule. So why did God give the law? Because of sin. Think about that. God gave the law because of sin. Why do societies write laws? Because of sin. Why do we have laws on the books? Because man's heart is what? Sinful. We need laws, just like I said. You can take away all the guns, that's not going to stop people from murdering. Why? Because sin lies within the human heart. You can take, all the way to, you can take away all the knives, people are going to use their vehicles. Mow people over. You hear stories about that all the time. People driving into crowds. I was reading a news story just this past weekend about a, a lady. She, uh, they uh, arrested her before she did it, but it was a 5K race going on somewhere. And this lady had plans of driving through the uh, race crowd to cause harm to people. You had a situation um, in Waukesha with the, was that a Christmas parade, I think? The man drove through uh, the parade with his SUV and killed six people. He just got sentenced uh, a few weeks ago. Why? Because of sin. You have four, uh, was it, University of Utah, where uh, students were killed by a knife? I think it was four of them. With the knife. What are you going to do? Ran all knives? Can't cook anymore? No. Man's heart is sinful. That's why we have laws. Because of sin. Man is so sinful that we have to have laws. So that's why we have God's law. Villages have ordinances because of sin. Parents, again, make rules because what? We know our children are sinners. Teachers post classroom guidelines, right? When you was in school as a teacher, teachers had their rules, you know, first few days of class. These are my classroom rules. So I only had 10 rules. I only had three. But they were still rules because I know that students can be what? Sinful. If you don't think so, leave your classroom for about 30 minutes. <laughs> you know, when we was in school, spitballs and popping pencils and stuff was a big, was a bad thing when I was in school. You know, make, make spitballs and stuff like that. Teacher lead the classroom. Now, that was one teacher. It's Betty Ruth Matthews, uh, seventh grade Washington Public. She didn't play. When she left the room, you were still quiet. You did not say a word when Ms. Matthews left. She was that... She was that kind of teacher. But she still had classroom rules. Her rule was, when I leave this classroom, you better keep working. <laughs> so, of course, you know, some people try to do something, and you hear come back down the hallway, everybody try to shuffle around like they haven't done anything. Y'all know about that. Y'all know y'all did that in school, too. So, but Anyway, teachers have rules. If citizens were upstanding, guess what? We wouldn't need laws. We wouldn't need policemen. We wouldn't need law enforcement. And if the people of God were perfectly sinless, there would be no need for the law of God. But God's law, like our household rules, reveal to God's children something of who he is. The law shows us, this is what the law does. The law shows us how holy God is. The law shows us how righteous God is. The law shows us how merciful God is. The law is just not something that is condemning. The law also shows us the mercy of God. It shows us the compassion of God. But it also shows us the glory of God. It shows us the holiness of God. It shows us the patience of God. God was patient with Israel. You ever read uh, 
especially Exodus through. I mean, we've been doing the Bible study. We do Deuteronomy now. <laughs> you read Exodus through uh, Deuteronomy to see how sinful Israel was and how patient God was with them. God could have wiped them off the face of the earth. Uh, they, they did so much against him. But no, the law revealed God's mercy. God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. It was his prerogative. People say, oh, the God, the Old Testament was, was a mean God. He was a bloodthirsty God. He was a murderous God. No, it's the same God. He's not two different gods, one of the Old Testament and, and one of the New Testament. That's not our God. So Paul is saying here, the purpose of the law is to show us our sin because of sin that's why it was added because of transgressions till the seed who is Christ should come to whom the promise was made okay the law was to prepare the world for Christ that's what the law was for it was to reveal sin but it was also to prepare the world for Christ. Now, we as believers, we need to be clear about the purpose of the law. Everything that God created has a purpose. Everything. And it is a good thing. But do you know that even good things can be bad? The law was created to be good, but it also revealed sin it was good for us because we needed it because our hearts are so sinful just like laws legislations are good for us laws are good for us it's good to have a speed limit just imagine if we didn't have a speed limit now when good things become bad when we use it for something they were never intended to that's when they become bad Charles Spurgeon the great 19th century British preacher said this he said a handsaw is a good thing but not to shave with <laughs> that is true a handsaw cuts but it's not used to do what shave your face a handsaw is good for cutting wood but not for facial hair and then he says there's sense in choosing your tools for a pig's tail will never make a good arrow nor will his ear make a silk purse. A good thing is not good out of its place. And that is the same way it is with God's law, people. The purpose of the law is to restrain sin. Yet in so doing, it reveals sin's power. The purpose of the law is to restrain. Because the fact is... Man is not as evil as he could be. We may not believe that, looking at how our world is. Robert Grimacki, the theologian, said this. He says, in a sense, sinful man. Okay, he says, the intent of the law was to reduce the amount of sin that could be committed. In a sense, Sinful man is not as bad as he could be, although he is bad as bad off as he can be. Moral anarchy cannot be tolerated by either God or man. The aim of the law was to give sin the character of transgression and to create within the sinner a consciousness of guilt. So the law is meant to convict our consciousness of sin. Think about this. How many of y'all run a red light before? Okay. How did you feel when you ran that red light? Did you pump the brakes a little bit when you passed through as a lot of people do? And look around. You know what that is? That's guilt. That's guilt. If you didn't do anything wrong, why are you looking around? Exactly. That's, that's, that's guilt. That's what the law does. When you break the law, it brings guilt. 
It brings guilt. When you see those blue lights flashing behind you, because you know you've been going 15, 20 miles over, that guilt sets in like, man, that's guilt. That's what the law does. That's it. That's the purpose. It is to convict us, convict our consciousness of sin, to make us knowledgeable of sin so that we can turn to Christ. Remember, he became a curse for us. He became condemnation for us. So that's what Paul is saying here. This law prepares the world for Christ. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. It was handed down or ordained through the angels by a mediator. He says that in verses in verse 20. And then the last section here. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Paul is really good at those uh, what we call rhetorical questions. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been what? By the law. If the law was able to give life, then guess what? We will need to be saved by faith. What Paul was saying here was that the law cannot give life. He asserts that the law properly understood and applied is not against the promises of God. But the law is unable in itself to give life and it is not a vehicle for obtaining righteousness. That's what he said here. The law cannot give life. And this is Paul's insight into this passage. But this same insight applies to all laws, all rules, all ordinances, all commands, everything that is required of us. While they do have a purpose, their purpose is not to give life. And when we do look for them to give life, guess what? The opposite happens, death. Because through the law, we're going to sin. We're going to break them. They cannot give us life the life that we have in Christ Jesus and that's what Paul is saying here if so then righteousness would have been by the law or it does obey the law we'll be, we'll be made right the law cannot provide you with motivation to do what the law calls you to do that's what it's mean by, by giving life the law cannot motivate you to do it to do what's right to do what God has called you to do to obey what God has called you to obey the law cannot do that at all it can guide you but it cannot motivate you to want to do God's will it can tell you how to channel your desires in a way that honors God but it cannot give you God honoring desires so and I want to say this too it's not the law's fault that we can't keep the law because if it's the law's fault it's God's fault because God is the lawgiver. The fault of not being able to keep the law comes from us. It is because of our flesh. It is because of our fallen nature. It is because we are in Adam. Our first parents sinned and when they did, guess what? That brought us into sin. It is because of us that we can't obey God's law. Not because of God. Is it the fault of the state of Alabama that we can't obey the speed limit of 45? No, it's our fault because the sin in us says that's too slow. 45 seems slow, but you stand beside, if you get hit by a car going 45 miles per hour, I promise you it won't feel slow. <laughs> okay, if a car hits you at 45, you dead. So it's not the fault of Aldot that the speed limit is 45. On the interstate, it's not Aldot's fault that the speed limit is 70. It's not their fault that we can't obey it. It's our hearts. It's our sin. That we want to go faster. We want to go 85 and, and 90 and, 
and 95. You Atlanta going 125, 150. Why? Because our sin. So it is not the fault of God at all. So he says, he continues here, verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. Okay, tutor is almost like a, a person who's responsible for something. Therefore, the law was our tutor, bringing us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith came, we're no longer under a tutor. So what, what is Paul saying in those concluding uh, verses? He's talking about the custodial role of the law. Before faith came, we were being guarded or being held under the law. Being made a prisoner until Faith being about to be revealed. Until faith we were prisoners to the law. Until faith we were condemned under the law. So verse 24 shows that in such uh, a status the law became our guardian. Our teacher. Okay to Christ. In order that we might be justified by faith. That's what it says about us. So. In essence, as we close out this message. As we look at the role of the law, I hope that has been made clear to you all. What Paul was telling the Galatians, the role of the law and why you don't need to be trying to live by the law and trying to tell the Gentiles to live by the law. I want to land the plane here by saying this. The message of hope to those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. One of the greatest ones is Romans 1. I'm sorry, Romans 1 verses, Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. And this is what that passage says. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Listen to this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what was that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Christ died in order to deal with our sin and every transgression that we've committed against God's law. That's why he died. But more than that, because Jesus was raised from the dead, he now gives life through his spirit. And he pours out his spirit in the lives of his people. And now we live by the spirit. We live not by the law. It is God's Holy Spirit who gives life to our souls. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to love God and the things of God. We can't love the things of God without the spirit of God in us because the Holy Spirit gives us that desire to love God and the things of God. It is the Lord who does that. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us walk in the Spirit. That's Galatians 5 and 16. We have to follow the lead of the Spirit. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to bear the fruit of the Spirit. The law does not threaten a curse, but it offers a blessing to the ones who bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
Christ became the curse for us. So that we would not have to bear the curse of the law if we believe in him. Amen. Let us let us pray. Father, thank you for helping me through this passage. It was difficult to studying and I thank you for bringing clarity to us by your spirit. Pray, Lord, that you encourage the faithful to live by the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and not try to obey the law because we cannot and we would not do it perfectly at all. I pray for unbelievers that hear this, that as they are convicted of their sins, that you may grant them a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give them faith, Lord, to believe. And Lord, help all of us to see that it is the law that reveals sin. It shows us our sin. And it also shows us our need for a Savior who perfectly obeyed your law. And that is the man, Jesus Christ. Christ perfectly obeyed your law, Lord. And that's why we ought to look to him, to trust in him, and believe in him. Father, bless your word. In Christ's name, amen.